episode six of the Helipod. Getting it up a little bit late here on Monday, but better late than never. Uh, Mike Silver, tremendous reporter for NFL Network, going to join us in just a few minutes, talking primarily about Dennis Rodman and the last dance doc. Mike Silver, very close to Dennis Rodman, was actually on several of those epic benders, those trips to Vegas, wrote about them for Sports Illustrated, also wrote a book with Rodman as well. But first, I want to talk about sports being back. Man, how pumped are we? Even if you're not a UFC fan, you had to be elated for real live sports happening over the weekend. UFC 249 in Jacksonville was a tremendous step and a huge step in the right direction for fans and sports who are just thirsty for something to watch or somebody to root for. So cool to see Dana White saying today that several commissioners from other sports leagues have reached out to him to say, how did you pull this off? How did you get this done? And can you help us? Can you share that information with us? Which apparently he's going to do. He had a 30-page document that he sent to the uh, leaders in Florida and Nevada, the governor and their staff to say, this is how we're going to do it. And this is why it's going to be a success. And guess what? The worst possible thing happened. One fighter, Jacare Sosa, two of his cornermen tested positive for the coronavirus the day before the fight. So on Friday, he tests positive for coronavirus. He's taken off the card. And guess what? They moved on. Everything was okay. That was it. They took that fight, they took it off the card, and they moved on. Now, it, it was interesting to watch the fights with no fans. Zero fans were in there. There were about 300 uh, staff members, personnel from ESPN and the UFC. They were there all week long in Jacksonville, and they got tested multiple times throughout the week. So the UFC had access to about 1,200 tests. There were 300 people. They tested them multiple times throughout the week. And that was one of the reasons that Jacare Sosa, uh, they found out because they tested him again on Friday, got that positive test back, but it, it didn't affect anything else. And everything went off as planned. It was kind of funky. You know, the fighters walking in, some of them uh, having air high fives to fans. Um, many of the fighters, including former NFL star Greg Hardy, said they could hear what the commentators were saying while they were in the octagon and they adjusted accordingly. Hardy, for instance, said that he could hear Daniel Cormier, one of my old broadcast buddies from the uh, contender series saying that he needed to check the kicks better. And so he started doing that and eventually got the win. This reminded me actually a little bit of the contender series because the contender series they shoot now at uh, what's called the UFC Apex, which is on the campus, uh, basically, uh, of the UFC uh, facility in Las Vegas. It's a very small gym, and it has, I don't know, maybe five, six rows of bleachers, and it's just family, very close friends of the fighters who were there that night. Uh, great new facility. It just uh, went into action last year, and I believe they are going to try to have fights there in the, uh, in the very near future after they wrap things up in Jacksonville. Uh, but even with the fighters being able to hear uh, what the announcers are saying, John Anik and Joe Rogan um, and Daniel Cormier, 
they're not going to change that. Talk to the UFC today. They said they're going to keep them right there. It's, it's a new era, and that's something that's uh, just going to be a little different, very unique uh, about this time period. But I, I applaud the UFC for getting this done, uh, becoming the, the first uh, major sporting event in, in months here in the States. And they're going to have fight nights on Wednesday and Saturday from Jacksonville because the infrastructure is already there and it is already in place. So we're going to be seeing uh, more fights this week. Cannot wait for that. It, it was a great card too. By the way, that main event was just a war between Justin Gaethje and Tony Ferguson. Gosh, I like watching Gaethje fight. He is so good, so tough. You could see him in between rounds there. Just, all right, just getting so pumped up. He literally, he literally is having so much fun during the fight that he can't contain himself. And then he had Francis Ngannou, who's just a monster with a 20-second knockout, a controversial finish between two of the all-time greats in Henry Cejudo and Dominic Cruz with Cejudo winning and retiring on the spot. So uh, I believe the numbers were really, really good for that fight. I can't imagine that they wouldn't be being the first sporting event uh, in quite some time. And we're going to get a lot more UFC this week. They literally own, they own the sports calendar right now. And uh, hopefully they can reap the rewards because uh, we're going to be seeing some uh, good fights this week. So sports is back. That's the UFC. And uh, the last dance continued with episodes seven and eight. So we're going to talk a little hoops now. It's the Helipod. Presented by Viore. And without much further ado, my good buddy Mike Silver from the NFL Network, formerly of Sports Illustrated and Yahoo, just moving on up. When I say Sports Illustrated, I mean the golden era of Sports Illustrated. Silver, you know what I'm talking about. When we couldn't wait to get the magazine and the mailbox as kids. I mean, that's you were that was that was when you wanted to be at Sports Illustrated and you were doing cool things like partying with Rodman for days <laughs> and then writing about it. So that's where I want to start. We'll talk football in a little bit. But that cover story you did on Rodman in the mid-90s when he was with the Spurs, with the parrot and the and the rhinestone collar and the shiny pants, like that was kind of the blossoming of your relationship with them, right? Yeah, I mean, it was a crazy slice in time. I had been hired at Sports Illustrated from the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, which is a pretty unusual jump, uh, in 1994, late 1994. Uh, I was 29 years old, and uh, that next May, they called and said, hey, uh, we want you and Rodman. Now, this was an interesting match because I had already shown them that I could kind of get access to people who were considered tough to reach and that I like to go out late and do what it took. That's work ethic, Dan, as you know. And uh, <laughs> uh, Rodman was just starting to get weird or to show his weirdness and was on the Spurs, getting ready to close out the Western Conference Finals against the Lakers. And they just said, hey, fly to L.A. They play Thursday. Just fly to L.A. and see if you can hang with them. And I didn't know, you know, if he'd tell me to get lost or not. Um, went down to that shoot-around on the Thursday, and we proceeded to go on a four-day, three-state bender. Slept about six collective hours. Went to Vegas. Uh, obviously hit it off really, really well. And uh, I wrote this story. I'll show you sometime. 
in my home studio. Frame on the wall. There's the rare bird. Uh, yeah, there's the we, uh, uh, there's the cover, the famous cover with with Rodman right there. How do you how do you balance when you're with somebody like that? How do you balance hanging out and then trying to remember, especially in the state that I'm sure you're in half the time, stuff for the story? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And it was, it, it was something that throughout my SI career, you know, you, you kind of had to navigate from slipping off to the bathroom and taking a few notes. And, and listen, we had uh, fact checking and seven layers of editing. And with time, you could go circle back and make sure with the subject, uh, you know, you are accurately representing them. But, um, you know, in this case, there was a lot to remember and there was a lot of alcohol. Um, you know, the first night I remember we were at a club in West Hollywood and listen, I, I was, you know, I was 29, he was 34. And Dan, you've, you've been out with me. I was like, I could drink with any 34 year old for one night when I'm 29. Oh yeah. Uh, no, uh, Rodman likes these little girl drinks, you know, Goldschlager and Jägermeister and Kamikazes. I was pouring shots out under the table that night, you know, unbeknownst to him because I, I was, you know, there's no way. And uh, I remember we were outside and that's where he gave me some of the Madonna quotes, including, you know, she has ways of making you feel like King Tut, which was not even the most sexually risque quote that he <laughs> gave me that night. You know, we had to fight to get a lot of this in SI at the time. And one of the quotes, I'm not sure if I got it into that story or a later story, but when he started talking about gay sex fantasies, he said, I'll tell you this, if I ever do decide to love another man, I'm going to find someone just like me and love the bleep out of them. It'll be like two <laughs> bulls going at it, bro. I promise you that. Imagine trying to get that by the, the uh, you know, Ivy League educated SI oh, editors, yeah. tweed, bow tie wearing SI editors in 1995. But, um, you know, I, I think what was going on is that I – he had been a guy who felt deep inside that he was a weirdo, that he was a freak and was scared most of his life that if he let that out, it would be terrible and people would hate him and he'd be castigated and, and marginalized. And, and he finally started to let it out. And some of that happened, but he was just shocked that so many people in society, many of whom didn't care about basketball or even sports, uh, how many people that resonated with and how many of them felt like he was important for doing that. And specifically the LBGTQ community, um, you know, transgender people. He was talking about things that in that era were, you know, just not talked about in the sports world and, and sticking up for them and, and expressing a commonality with them. And, and I, I saw so many people time after time in person go up to him and hug him and tell him thank you, you know, and, and talk to him about how important that was. And I know that gets lost a lot in the circus, which was as amazing as it looked and the alcohol and the craziness of the party, you know, that all happened and it was fun, but there was also something pretty cool going on in an era when sports was, the sports world was pretty boring and people weren't really living out loud. How much of an impact did Madonna have on him in that sense? Because I, I, the feel I get from reading the book and reading your articles is that he still had a great amount of respect for Madonna. 
Yeah, he did. And um, it, it had a lot to do with it. Now, a lot of people think that there's a direct traceability from Madonna to Rodman in that she was one of the most savvy marketers in the history of massive celebrity, right? She sure. reinvented herself. She knew how to, uh, you know, freshen things up and shock. And I'm sure they had those conversations. And I know that some of what he did was with that in mind. But People kind of miss the point on that, too. They think that Rodman, it was this grand marketing scheme. I was there for a lot of it. It was punch-drunk breakfast at 9 in the morning after we'd been out all night. And people, oh, bro, what if I put on a wedding dress? You know, it was more uh, whimsical. And, and he wanted to push the, the conventions of society and, and make a point about how conventional and boring and restricted most people were, including Michael Jordan, by the way, who he respected so much as a teammate and leader but thought was living his life the complete wrong way and I'm sure and I, and I know that was mutual or vice versa but you know he um Dennis and I talked a lot about uh Jimi Hendrix and Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and some of the public theater that had happened in counterculture in the 60s and and what that did and what that meant and and I know that resonated with him too he wanted to show he wanted to make a statement to society that you know all these boring contrived people are doing it wrong and that i'm on to you and that you should uh you know be willing to deconstruct it and poke fun of yourself a little bit because you're boring the crap out of me now there's nobody better in my mind to follow dennis rodman around than you because there is a there there's a certain level of weirdness about mike silver and uh, a tremendous tremendously high level of likability where you you can just kind of be in a room with anybody and get along and I think that's one of your great talents but there has to be a moment or moments with Dennis Rodman that would even make you blush or shake your head or say what the hell am I doing here <laughs> oh yeah there's there are a lot and listen I it's what's weird to me is you know I was in the Rodman 30 for 30 I'm watching the last dance um I just can't believe how little footage exists of all of us going out because we were not hiding. It was not subtle. It was loud. Uh, it was not shielded. There were no VIP rooms. You know, Michael Jordan would go to Vegas and sit in a room alone with a dealer and nobody could see in. We were out at the craps tables of the Mirage, you know, Dennis was hugging tourists and, you know, just a, a man of the people. And we'd go out to Crowbar in Chicago, a thousand plus people there. We right in the middle of it, on the stage, in the crowd, no VIP area. And so it, it's just stunning to me. I guess I should be grateful in some sense that no footage exists, I guess. But <laughs> I'm kind of curious. I'd like to see it. I'd like my kids to be able to check it out. And I can't believe that in the same lifetime, you know, it's not like phones didn't exist. Phone cameras didn't. But, you know, here, here it was 25 years ago. And apparently everything we did all the time was completely not chronicled. But now, you know, if you go to the grocery store, somebody's got you on video. And uh, you know, here we are on video. So it, it's, been a, it's been a crazy transition. But, you know, really, my friendship with Dennis, to me, it's like I get kind of emotional about it. And, and it's really touching to me because I've described it before. It's kind of like your best friend when you're 10. There's nothing better. It's like you love that guy now. Sometimes you have to have an emotionally developed conversation with that person and, 
when it's a 10 year old best friend, it's kind of frustrating. And, you know, one of those times was when uh, our book walk on the wild side came out, it was during the 97 playoffs and he wasn't, he was having a rough year. That was the year he kicked the photographer and he had been suspended and he was just, he wasn't playing well. His knee was hurt and he got frustrated. And when the book came out, you know, Dennis was great about letting me, you know, really take, uh, you know, take, take the narrative in uh, extreme places with his voice. And, and he was cool with all of it. And uh, he, he was being questioned one day by some Chicago reporters. I think they were in Atlanta for a playoff series. And they said, well, what about this thing? What about this? That doesn't even sound like you. And he, in what he believed was an inside joke to me, said, oh, it's like he took my words like he was on acid and, you know, rearranged them or something. And that was our inside joke because I went to Cal and he would say, oh, Berkeley, you and smoking mushrooms and LSD. And, uh, you know, I, I think he just got frustrated and tried to mess with me, but it was taken as Dennis Robert didn't really say the things in his own book, which, right. you know, prompted a phone call from me. Um, you know, a few hours before a game, and, and I was really angry. And he was like, oh, come on, bro. He's like, ah, you know, I was just messing around. And I said, hey, aside from my personal feelings, from a marketing perspective, if you're trying to get people to believe that Walk on the Wild Side by Dennis Rodman is actually by Dennis Rodman, you might want to avoid statements like that. And at one point he said, oh, man, hey, you coming to the game? I'm like, no, I'm not coming to the game. I'm in California. Stop doing that. But, uh, you know, I, on the other hand, I mean, he uh, – uh, one of the most touching things that's happened to me in my career. So 1995, that story runs, and it's – I remember saying to him before I left San Antonio – you realize that when this runs, it's going to change your life. You're going to be getting called uh, fag and, and horrible slurs uh, by people at games. You're going to, it's not only just going to blow up in terms of shock value, but there's going to be a lot of hate coming your way. And, and, you know, are you prepared for that? And I know for a fact that um, when the story hit and it was such a, a shock that one person very close to him advised him, deny everything say you didn't say it blame it on the writer and wow. that's your best play and so now a few days after the story he is live on or he is on david letterman which as you know in 1995 was, was as big as it gets and david letterman has the magazine in his hand and he says dennis i'm reading this crazy story about you uh you know did the writer just kind of go some places and that's, Oh, he's a great writer. I, you know, I, that's a great story. I love it. I'm like, Whoa. And then he said, uh, Letterman held up the magazine and said, but does this accurately represent your thoughts? And he said, yeah, absolutely. I love that story. And I was like, you know, wow. Cause you know, we had, we had just met and, uh, I was, you know, early in my SI career and, uh, you know, to have someone, uh, stick up for me and tell the truth like that at a time where a lot of people were coming at him, that really, really touched me. And, uh, you know, I, I'm really proud of him for hanging in there. He's got, he's been through a lot. He, uh, you know, he's really struggled with, with alcohol and, and tried at various times to, to get a grip on that, which is hard because it's one thing for someone like me to go up alcohol if I did, cause I'd be like, man, I love having fun. I love drinking, but you know, I, uh, 
I'm, I'm pretty good at it, but I've had a good career. Dennis Rodman is a Hall of Fame drinker, too. I mean, he's, you know, absolutely the life of the party. He's a freak of nature. And he creates complete environments that revolve around how fun he is when he's drinking it. So, you know, but seriously, I, I am really proud of him for hanging tough and, and you know, uh, fighting through some stuff. And uh, a lot of people thought all the money would be blown and that he'd be dead or, or in terrible circumstances by this point. And he's addressed that with me before and said, you know what, where I've came from, we always assume we blow the money anyway. This is, it's all gravy, but I'm really proud of him for hanging in. His relationship with, with Michael, you, you mentioned a little while ago, they, they had respect for each other. Did they like each other? Uh, they didn't hang out off the court, but did he like Michael? They liked each other as basketball people. Dennis loved not only how great a player Michael was, but how much he cared and how much he led and how important it was to him and, and, um, and how hard he played on both ends, by the way, because for you youngsters, Michael Jordan was also by far the best defensive guard of his era. And, you know, and Dennis is a guy who Michael loved basketball-wise because – uh, you know, long before he joined the Bulls and probably a reason that Michael wanted him on the Bulls and they had had those battles when Dennis was in Detroit. But this is a guy who acted on the court like nothing was more important, extending horizontally for a ball, uh, you know, having a game where he scored no points at 28 rebounds, you know, battling for boards against bigger guys, uh, being willing to guard Akeem Olajuwon in the 1995 Western Conference Finals when his teammate and that season's regular season MVP, David Robinson, who, like Akeem, was a seven-footer, couldn't handle Akeem. And Dennis Rodman, who's probably 6'5 and a half, had to guard him. Uh, you know, and so that guy who cared that much when he played, Michael knew the importance of that. And that was their connection because they were absolutely the opposite off the field, and neither one really – thought the way the other guy was doing it, uh, thought much of it. You know, Dennis thought that Michael was repressing his, you know, his real self and that it looked like no fun and that he needed to lighten up and just go with it and, and you know, not worry about his image. And Michael thought Dennis was insane and living way too loose and uh, not, uh, you know, and imperiling the team with some of his behavior. But, uh, you know, they, they made it work for three unbelievable years. That they did. I mean, it was really impressive. You know, one of my other takeaways while the last dance has been going on is the reverence that Rodman holds for Scottie Pippen. Actually said if LeBron was playing in that era, Pippen would have been a better player. He just raves about what Pippen could do all over the court. And so I'll ask you the same question. I know what, how he feels about Scotty as a player, but, but as a friend, was there anybody else on that team besides Jack Haley, who was there for a, you know, a minute with him that he would hang out with? Uh, yeah. And it wasn't Scotty. Um, you know, I grew up with Steve Kerr, so uh, I've known him for a long time. Sure. And I believe, you know, at the hall at Rodman's hall of fame induction, I, I was there and, uh, two former teammates were there, any team, uh, any level, any team. And that was Steve Kerr and Judd Bushler, who 
played with Steve at Arizona and with the Bulls, and they were part of our incredible celebration that night. And, uh, you know, I, I Rodman used to – he hated hanging out with the wives. To him, that was the, one of the most establishment things ever. In fact, when we were in Vegas uh, during that first meeting, you know, for that story, uh, he wa- – the plan was to fly to Phoenix to watch game seven of the Rockets' Suns in the other Western Conference semifinal, which was essentially scouting their next opponent. And we were going to show up courtside and freak everyone out. But Bob Hill, the coach of the Spurs at the time, who Rodman affectionately referred to as Boner, which is also in the story, <laughs> uh, and maybe not so affectionate, but Boner called and, and demanded that Dennis get back to San Antonio for an off-day function and what we ended up doing it, but one of Dennis's big complaints and why he resisted for a long time was that he didn't want to hang out with the boring ass wives. And uh, when he got to Chicago, well, you know, Steve and I grew up together and we met our respective wives, Leslie and Margo around the same time. And uh, we both overachieved and uh, you know, I knew Margo. And so when Dennis got to the bulls and made a derogatory comment about the wives at one point, I said, Hey, you might like a couple of these wives, uh, you know, and uh, sure enough, once he went out with uh, Stephen Margo and John and his then wife, Lindsay, he was like, oh, yeah, they're pretty fun. So, um, yeah, he 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 went out with Stephen Judd quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I, I will say this, Rodman, he was a student of the game and he was a student of all games because he may or may not have loved friendly wagers on other sports. And uh, he had... He had some of the great um, insights I've seen in football. And uh, we watched a uh, – he was a big Cowboy fan because he was from Dallas. And sure. He, uh, we watched a game together where they were struggling in the playoffs. I think it was the game where Deion Sanders got knocked out cold on a reverse when he was playing on offense, a super scary concussion. And they were losing maybe to the Panthers. And uh, he, he said something – in the heat of the moment when he was upset that I thought like voice something that I'd been thinking about for a while and that could never really put into words succinctly. And he said, it was something the effect of Troy Aikman when things are going well, best quarterback I've ever seen when things are going bad, worst player on the field. And obviously that was an exaggeration, but you know, all the things I'd kind of thought, which is, you know, do we penalize Troy for making it look so easy so much of the time and his greatness isn't, it's not like Joe Montana bringing you back or Elway because things are lost. But a lot of times Troy's greatness is that the Cowboys just were so much better than you. And he was so perfect that it never got to that. But yet does he really grit out a lot of games as much as you want him to? Dennis Rodman said that in one sentence, you know, day drinking uh, on a party bus. And I would kind of looked at him like, wow, I'm stealing that, dude. It's, uh, it's, it's deep without being deep. I, I love your uh, impression, by the way, of, of Dennis Rodman. You have, uh, you have a great Steve Kerr story that we saw in the doc, uh, I believe it was episode seven, that we're going to get to in one minute. First, we're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about Viore. It is a uh, new perspective on performance apparel. If you're sick and tired of your old traditional workout gear, try Viore. This stuff is awesome. You can get 20% off. All you have to do is go to vioriclothing.com slash helipod. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash helipod. They have 
men's shorts, men's sweatshirts, great workout t-shirts, joggers for both men and women. They have this new Ponto pant that uh, hopefully quarantine is, is over at some point in the near future. But when you're hanging around your house, Silver, I don't know if they sent this in the package to you, but it's the most comfortable pant I have ever worn on the entire planet. It's vioriclothing.com slash helipod for 20% off. I promise you, try it out. You won't be sorry. That's, a, that's right. the first thing I'm going to do when I get out this podcast is try to find those pants and put them on. I'm pumped. Damn right, Silver. I can't wait. I want to hear all about it. But not before I hear about this Steve Kerr story. Uh, Kurt, Kurt tells the story um, last night in episode seven or eight. I can't remember which one. But basically, when, when Michael came back from playing baseball, they were in practice. Michael was just riding the shit out of them. And he's like, I just snapped. I broke. And I know I, I was either going to crater or I had to stand up to him. And he, and he did. And how does the story go when, when he's telling you? And is your, is your head just spinning that this guy you grew up with just got in a fist fight with Michael <laughs> Jordan in practice? Yeah, although also when he hit the game-winning shot, to, uh, the championship-winning shot, also when he retired as the all-time three-point percentage leader in NBA history, which he still owns. And, of course, uh, I grew up a Warrior fan in L.A., so I got teased by all my L.A. friends for being the Bay Area sports fan all my life, including Steve. So I, I played that well because – Ultimately, uh, he came, you know, he came my way. Awesome. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. But um, no, I had, um, you know, Steve and I wrote a sports column together for our high school newspaper, which was the Palisades Tideline. It was called the Riptide and lived down to its name. No, it was pretty good. And, and Steve's hilarious. So in 1997, Sports Illustrated sent me out to do a story on Steve. Uh, and so my wife, Leslie, and I and our newborn daughter, Natalie, flew out and we stayed at Steve and Margo's house and uh, Nick and Maddie were little at the time and, uh, you know, just hung out for a few days. So we, you know, we first get there and Steve and I are, are catching up. And so I'm like, so dude, um, uh, Michael Jordan and you like got a fight. And uh, so he said, he goes, dude, uh, you know, I think he was, you know, not loving me when he came back for a variety of reasons things he'd heard, stuff with the labor uh, situation. I was the player rep, and I could just tell it wasn't good, and it's getting worse and worse, and I'm finally at a point where I'm like, okay, I either am going to back down and be considered a wuss in this building forever, and I can never fight my way out of that, or I'm going to fight Michael Jordan. Great choice, you know, and I'm like, what'd you do? And it's like, I fought Michael Jordan and got my ass kicked. And but of course he did. Yeah, of course he did. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's surreal. The other guy that I knew in the NBA uh, who I went to college with was Kevin Johnson and, at Cal. And um, he idolized Magic Johnson, like many of us did, thought it was the greatest player he'd ever seen. And then Kevin Johnson got in a fight with Magic Johnson. So I'm like, okay, so one of my friends fought Michael. The other one fought Magic. Uh, you know, glad I didn't make the NBA. Cause yeah, who are you gonna, fighting? You fighting not, somebody not on Press Row, Silver? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not – well, maybe. But I'm not a good enough fighter or basketball player. But, uh, yeah, so Steve, um, you know, I, I, I'm so proud of him too. And, and not just uh, – I mean, I, I can't believe that a guy that I guarded at times, you know, played 15 years in the NBA, won five championships, and, you know, has coached three. But I, I just um, – 
you know, he's he's someone who's like was the best dude in the world growing up and has become better. And, uh, you know, just him as a person. and, a, and a Well, and he's one of those guys, Silver. He's smart. He's progressive. Like, yeah. like Popovich, you can ask him about worldly things and get a worldly answer from him, which is not the case with all NBA coaches or NFL coaches or, or anybody, you know, for that matter. And that's one of the things that I think I really appreciate about Steve Kerr. Um, I know we only have a couple of minutes left. I promised I would get you off by a certain time, and I will do that. So I want to ask you one NFL question. Since That's what I, uh, she said, Dan. It, That's it, what she said. You're the man, which uh, because that is your job right now. Okay, the most interesting player-related storyline, because obviously the most interesting storyline is how much or how little of this season are we going to have because of coronavirus. Uh, but the most interesting player related storyline in the offseason, right? You can have Brady or Prescott or Cam Newton, not with the team yet, or Aaron Rodgers and them drafting a quarterback in Green Bay. What's the, the one or two storylines that have stood out the most to you in the last couple of weeks? Well, I, you know, I thought when the Packers drafted Jordan Love, that was a big, big deal. I, I had um, virtual access into Jaguars general manager Dave Caldwell's draft room, which was awesome. But believe it or not, his wife, Joelle, held up the phone via the house party app for pretty much the whole first round. <laughs> and I got awesome. to see in. And uh, she, so she's the real MVP. But um, so I was writing late that night. But um, because I went to Cal and because when my sons were very young, uh, they were Cal fans, of course, my wife and I went there. And when Aaron Rodgers got drafted by the Packers, they just decided they were Packer fans. So I have a household full of Packer fans. And uh, as the Packers drafted Jordan Love, I had taken a break to eat a little dinner with the family. And my sons and my wife were not happy. They were aghast. And not just because, oh, it's a threat to Aaron Rodgers, but who, we could have used that pick for a receiver or Patrick yes. Queen. Or, you know, that was a big, big – and uh, Leslie, my wife, actually screamed at me. And I'm on deadline. I'm just grabbing some food. Actually screamed at me, call Matt LaFleur right now, because she knows I'm, you know, pretty close to Matt LaFleur. I had talked to him earlier in the day. And so I, I did call Matt LaFleur. Um, and we talked the next morning, and I wrote about it on NFL.com. And, um, you know, listen, I have not talked to Aaron. I've tried to. Um, I, I think he is, uh, you know, he understands uh, the optics. He knows that people will be looking at him. I think as long as Jordan Love doesn't come in acting entitled or, you know, disrespectful, which from what I've heard is very, very unlikely given how the kid is, I think those two will be fine. And I don't think Aaron uh, – Aaron has a very strong sense of self, and I think he rightfully will not feel threatened like, oh, no, this guy's going to be better than me anytime soon. Right. But um, I do think the opportunity cost, as I alluded – is frustrating and, and if you're Aaron and you realize wow that's the first time they've drafted a skill player since me in 15 years in the first round and it was a quarterback uh that's kind of astounding so um you know I think it'll be fine and I think honestly if you're the Packers the best way to play this and I think it's reflective of reality is that was a management pick that was the general manager Brian Gutekunst and uh Mark Murphy runs that organization looking to the future but for it, it's really the coaches and Aaron uh, against the world now. And, and, you know, obviously Matt LaFleur is excited to coach Jordan Love and that could end up being a, a great, great thing. But 
right now, I think if you're Aaron and you're the coaches, you're like, hey, look, we're not questioning who our quarterback is in any way, and we're you know thrilled to have you in year two of this offense. Let's go show everybody. And so that's the best way it could work short term. And and you know, if all, if all goes well for the Packers, they've got a brutal decision in two or three years to make. And the decision is, you know what, we spent a first round pick on this guy, but Aaron's still good. And let's go get another heir apparent and keep rolling. Yeah, I'm sure they hope they have a similar situation to what happened in New England with uh, Jimmy Garoppolo. But um, that was a surprise to me. I've talked about it before. The championship windows are so small in the NFL that when you're coming off a 12-13 win season and you have the opportunity to add pieces that can help you win now, I just feel like you have to do that. And uh, I know Matt as well, and I, I know he said all the politically correct things, but I, I'm, I'm sure deep down inside he wouldn't have minded uh, getting a, a receiver or an offensive lineman or somebody that can get to the, the passer on defense. But um, that's neither here nor there. Uh, yeah, and that's and, the end of the – go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I'll leave you with this too. I, it is – you know, what people watching The Last Dance, they say, oh, my God, imagine if that happened now. It could never happen with Twitter. I, first of all, it would have been more conspicuous in real time with social media, but – Rodman wouldn't have changed a thing. Trust me. He would have lived exactly as outrageously now as then. Uh, and I, I just, I, I just want to, I want to just sign off with this. I think people, because things blow up and become big and seem shocking, believe somehow that, you know, things could, things have never happened before on that level. And, Listen, I covered Favre and Rodgers. That was messy and weird at the end, and that was tough. But I covered Joe Montana and Steve Young breaking into the business, and they were teammates for six years. There were games where they, they alternated starts at times. There was a game I covered uh, in 1988 when I was uh, stringing for the San Francisco Chronicle just out of college at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. Steve Young played the first half against the Giants, Joe Montana played the second half and Phil Sims led the Giants to a late touchdown and they were going to win. And Montana at the end just threw one of those scarily accurate sideline passes to Jerry Rice. That was like an optical illusion. And it was such a good pass that the safety in the corner collided. Oh. Rice caught it and went 78 yards down the sidelines and the 49ers celebrated. And you know what that meant? Joe got to start the next week. And so, and by the way, those guys didn't get along at all. There's so many things happened. So I just don't want people, oh, my God, Jordan Love and Aaron Rodgers are going to be on the same team. It's impossible. No, it's possible. I've seen worse. Uh, trust me, my threshold is pretty high. Well, I mean, you know we are prisoners of the moment, and I feel like so many people, I'm glad you brought that up, have forgotten about that. Because even to this day, you, you talk to Joe, and there's, there is no love loss there for his relationship with, uh, with Steve Young, as you know well being in the Bay Area right now. Mike Silver, one of the best in the business. I really appreciate the time, my friend, and uh, hopefully we'll get a catch up soon. Love it, Dan. Appreciate you.